This parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15 brings into stark relief the anguish of moral rebellion. This brilliant story exposes the heart-wrenching reality that no matter how hard we try, no matter how fervently we pray, against every fiber of our spiritual desire, people we love choose to turn their back on God. But Jesus' story balances this horror with the hope of repentance. Sinners who turn from God sometimes turn back to God in repentance. And when that happens, God rejoices to forgive, and people who share His heart rejoice with Him. Our Lord teaches us in this parable that sin is real, and its consequences are devastating. But the father running to his repentant son, as we get that picture in our mind's eye, embracing him with open arms, publicly rejoicing that his son, who has brought him so much shame undoubtedly, has returned. This is a lasting image of the hope of wayward sinners returning to God. And it is a picture we are to embrace Conversely, we see the older brother refusing to release his repentant brother from guilt. He wants to continue to look at him as one who is guilty and deserving of punishment. He's even seething against his younger brother with resentment. In the fallen face of this brother, we see the heart of one who is completely out of step with the reconciling agenda of our God. The faithful followers of Jesus Christ informed not only by this parable, but really by the overarching message of the Bible, bring to every human relationship a theology of sin. It's real. People turn from God. A theology of repentance. There is that place in God's design for people to return to Him. And then forgiveness and the reconciling mission of Jesus Christ. We see it just in this parable, but we see it in all of the Scriptures. That this is our God, and this is the life that He's given us in Christ. Our Father delights to forgive sinners who turn to Him in repentance on the merits of Jesus' sacrificial death and victorious resurrection. And this biblical perspective must then influence every human relationship. It's how we see life. Among its notable effects is the way that we should relate to any member of our church who turns away from God and becomes entrapped in sin. Now, over the last two weeks, we have been talking about things that churches don't like to talk about. Many don't. We've been talking about some things that are completely out of sync with Western individualism and the world in which we live, but we're talking about some things that the Bible makes very clear. Over the last two weeks, we've considered God's instruction to so love one another as an assembly, to so care enough about one another's walk with God that we remove from our membership any member who walks in unrepentant sin. We do this collectively, publicly, and we do this on the basis of Matthew chapter 18. Jesus instructs His people to operate this way as an assembly. We do this on the authority of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 
as the Apostle Paul brings to the Corinthians' attention the need that they have to remove from their assembly one who is walking in unrepentant sin. Both of these passages indicate that corrective church discipline is not an end in itself. We see a hint of this in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 5. It's stated a bit more precisely in Matthew 18, though that is a very succinct passage where it speaks of one who repents and thus we've regained our brother. But the ultimate goal, let us say, the ultimate goal of corrective church discipline is to see the sinner repent, to receive forgiveness and to be reconciled to God and thus restored to the loving fellowship of the church. This is what we really desire to see happen and what God intends as we are faithful to this calling. Today, then, we turn our attention to two passages that highlight this goal of corrective church discipline. I invite you first to Galatians chapter 6. Paul's letter to the Galatian churches, this epistle, chapter 6, We see how the churches are to respond to individuals who turn away from God. Brothers, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted." The book is addressed to the churches of Galatia, the believers in Christ. And it's written here, the direct address to brothers, that is to the brotherhood, the family of God, indicating that Paul is discussing here the life of the local church. So he's writing to believers and he said, if anyone, that doesn't mean anyone anywhere, think of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, not the unbelieving world, for instance, but any one of you that is a member of the church. If any one of you, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression. Notice that phrase, any transgression. It's not the nature of the sin that matters so much. Whether great or small, what matters is that the believer has become trapped in sin. Now, depending on the circumstances, the emphasis may be a little bit more on the idea that this person is unrepentant. They're walking in sin in an unrepentant manner. But this word caught would indicate also the possibility of an emphasis that this person has become overwhelmed, has become trapped. So a person becomes trapped or caught in a sin If that happens within your church, writes the Apostle Paul, and we would apply it to us then, when a member of our assembly becomes entrapped in sin, we are not to gossip about that person. We are not to avoid or ignore that person, to be embarrassed by that person's presence. We are not to criticize or to attack or to become harsh with that person. When a member of our congregation becomes entrapped in sin, what are we to do? You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Who is it that's spiritual? Are these the super saints among us, the sinless Christians? Obviously not the case. What's the context? Galatians chapter 5. What's the context there? Verse 19. Here are the works of the flesh contrasted 
with verse 22 and following, here is the fruit of the Spirit. Interesting contrast between works of the flesh and fruit of the Spirit. Here's what the flesh works out. Here is the fruit that God produces in the lives of His people. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. There's no law against these things. This is the fruit of the Spirit. That's the context. So verse 25 would say that the person who is spiritual within the assembly is one who lives by the Spirit and walks by the Spirit. That is, they have life in the Spirit, and the Spirit is producing fruit in them. I would call this, and some would differ with me here, but I would call this the normal Christian life. This is a person who is growing in the Christian faith. Not a sinless person, but anyone in the assembly who is growing in the fruit of the Spirit. You who are spiritual, that is, you who are not trapped in sin, you who are spiritual are to restore this individual. What does that mean, to restore him? The Greek word means to put in order, to repair, or to make complete. It was used as a medical term to describe the setting of a dislocated bone. That's painful, but absolutely essential, isn't it? To put it back into place. That's the idea. Here it speaks of moral restoration to a proper spiritual condition. So we are to take this dislocated life and to put it back into its right place, to restore this person to a right walk with God, to bring them in, chapter 5, to a place where the fruit of the Spirit is being produced in them again. They're not walking in the flesh in this way. What is the proper spirit with which we do this? The proper spirit, notice here, is a spirit of gentleness. We are not to approach this member with a proud, superior, harsh, or judgmental attitude. The Greek word speaks of someone who is courteous, considerate, humble, appropriate. That's the way in which we would approach such a person who is caught in sin. Now, as we do that, we need to further be cautioned. The end of verse 1 says, Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. None of us is exempt from temptation. We are all susceptible to the snare of sin. Therefore, as we seek to restore a member caught in sin, we need to exercise particular care of our own hearts. We need to be careful that Satan does not get a foothold. And as we are dealing with the sin of someone else, becoming proud, or perhaps displaying unjust anger, or impatience, or some other sin, don't allow Satan to gain such a foothold. Be careful to watch yourself, lest you be tempted as well. This would deal with private conversations with the sinner, According to, for instance, Matthew 18, we should come to them in a spirit of gentleness, not judgmentalness, not, not, being, not being judgmental, not being overbearing or condescending to them. But that's also true, Eden Baptist Church, as we would work with such a person to the place of church discipline. As we deal with such a matter, we need to be honest with it, upfront with it, but we do so in a spirit of gentleness. 
Let's turn then, as we look at this succinct statement, to a live example of a member under church discipline who comes to a place of repentance in his life. We turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And let's remember that the relationship with the Corinthian church and Paul was a fairly turbulent one. After sending his first letter to them, Paul visits the Corinthian church and he experiences some really serious opposition during that visit. This church was in a mess. And as he worked with them, there was a lot of difficulty. But he refers to this visit. It was so bad, if you can imagine this. He, he, it's so bad, he refers to it as the painful visit. It's just code word. They all knew what he meant. That painful visit when he came and had to deal with their sin and the struggles there in the, in the assembly. But following that painful visit, Paul considers going to visit them again and says, I don't even want to do that. It's just going to be another painful visit. And so he decides, I'm going to write them a letter. This letter is often referred to as the severe letter or the painful letter. It causes great trial. He writes this painful letter causing grief to the Corinthians. And in that letter, he apparently calls the church to exercise discipline against one of their members, a member who opposed Paul's authority after the painful visit. I'm drawing a lot of conclusions there that we can't prove ultimately. But I think that's the lean of this passage, chapter 7, and what we know of Paul's relationship with the Corinthians. Apparently, this man attacked Paul in such a manner that the unity of the body was jeopardized. This puts Paul in a very difficult situation. He is calling upon this church to exercise discipline against an individual who's attacked him. So what we're going to read as we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 is Paul being very, very cautious and gentle in his terminology. Remember, there's been a lot of grief both ways. Paul, as he sought to correct the church and put it on the right line, the church as it has dealt with fleshly behavior and all kinds of challenges to Paul's leadership. But I really believe, had the opposition been merely personal, that Paul would have just taken it, according to 1 Corinthians 6, and just said, I will endure the wrong. But this wrong was not merely personal. This was a wrong that was harming the church. And so he had to address it. And in this difficult letter, he calls them to show their loyalty to the truth and their love for Christ and for him as Christ's apostle by disciplining this individual from the assembly. This disruption had to stop. It was unhealthy to the church. It would ultimately undermine the gospel. And so he says, remove this one from among you. That, I believe, is the context as we come to chapter 2 and verse 5. Now it will make a bit more sense as we think of this volatile relationship. He says, now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. We've got to think really carefully here about the context, and that will help us understand what Paul is not saying here, which is just as important as what he is saying. When he says, if anyone has caused pain, what would you say? Has anyone caused pain? All kinds of pain. They called this the painful visit. 
And he calls this the, the letter that causes pain. There's been all kinds of pain. He's trying to be very gentle here. If anyone's caused pain, and you're supposed to read in there, in fact, people have, it's not a hypothetical, he's not caused it to me. Now, is that true? Of course, what the Bible says is true. We know that. But is that what Paul means in the figure of speech? He's actually using a Semitic figure of speech. We use these figures of speech all the time. And basically, he's saying, it's not, I'm not going to focus on that. He's caused the pain not so much to me. Now, if we press Paul and said, did the man cause you a lot of pain? Honestly, he would have to say, yes, he caused me a severe pain. But that's not the issue here. Not so much to me, not only to me. And not to put it too severely to all of you, what I think what he means here is not to make too much of this point. Perhaps not everyone would recognize the harm this man had done. And perhaps not everyone would have been equally affected by the harm that he had done. But in reality, Paul knows this man has hurt the health of the church because by opposing apostolic authority, inciting disunity, he has really challenged the gospel of Christ. Now the situation that's going to develop will help us also interpret this verse a bit, but just to summarize it, he's saying, now if anyone's caused pain, and obviously there's been a lot of pain involved, I'm not so worried about the pain that's been caused to me, but to the pain that's been caused to all of you. I don't want to make too much of it. Matters being resolved, but this has been a problem for the entire church. 4, verse 6. Such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Let's pick that apart a bit. Such a one, verse 6, is who? That's the person that has harmed Paul and has caused all the disruption to the church. He doesn't even name him. Graciously, he just leaves the name out. But such a one, for this one, this punishment by the majority is enough. What punishment? They listened to what Paul had written in his letter. They exercised church discipline against this man, and that was enough. That punishment, that church discipline was enough. Now notice it's exercised by the majority. The Greek word's a little more flexible than ours. Majority might say there was a minority who did not agree in this situation. But the Greek term could be nothing more than a generic reference to the community of believers. And we might take it, for instance, this way, that not everybody was there, but the majority, the church, generally, did exercise authority against this individual. What other are the details? It's clear this decision was made by the entire church. He doesn't say the decision of the elders. He doesn't say the decision of a lead individual in the assembly. He doesn't say behind closed doors. Remember what he said in 1 Corinthians 5, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, deliver this man to Satan. That is, put this man under the care of Satan because he's outside the care of the church. This all meshes together, and I think as we read between the lines, this is undoubtedly the situation that was there. The man who had caused Paul grief was now in a position, though, of being overwhelmed by grief himself. And Paul was saying, we cannot permit this. Think of the parable of Jesus. Think of the theology of forgiveness and repentance. 
Using the words of Jesus, the church had bound this man, and now it was time to loose this man. Why? There can be only one reason given as we put it together with other passages and as we put it together with the theology of all of the Scripture, and that is that the man has repented of his sin. It locks into Matthew 18. Remember what's said there. If he repents, you have gained your brother. Not if he repents, you can close that file and forget all about the guy. If he repents, you've gained your brother. This brother is in the process of being regained. Now praise God for the Corinthian church. If they hadn't done so many things wrong, we wouldn't have specific passages like this that help us do things right. But you remember 1 Corinthians 5? What were they doing? They had a man living in open adultery in their assembly and they weren't doing anything about it. By that failure, Paul gives us the instruction very carefully in chapter 5 that we as a body are to call such a person to repentance and if they don't repent, we're to put them outside the protective umbrella of the assembly into the care of Satan. Guess where the Corinthian church is now? Right on the other side of the equation. They have exercised discipline against an individual who is causing disruption and disunity in the assembly, but now that he's repented, they're not bringing him back in. They're not extending the forgiveness that is really God's intention. You should writes Paul, verse 7, very gently here. doesn't name the man, doesn't draw attention to himself and the pain that he has suffered as an apostle, but he just says, you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. It seems that churches today, writing their own letters and their own rules, would say any church that's ever put excessive sorrow on anybody is out of line. Or put sorrow on anyone is out of line. That's not what he says. Actually, the beauty and the value of church discipline is working here. The assembly has come together to say this individual is not living an obedient life, and the pressure worked. This man came to the place where he said, I'm wrong. He's repented of his sin and now he is in the danger of being overwhelmed by excessive sorrow because the church is not welcoming him back. So just as the 1 Corinthians 5 situation was out of sync with the purity that God intends for his people, so the situation here is out of sync with the mercies of a God who rejoices to forgive repentant sinners. In the first case... The church was in the danger of being with the prodigal son and cheering him on. In this case now, they're in danger of being like the older brother who's got his arms folded and say, we don't want this man back. Open your arms, says the apostle. Open them wide and receive him back into your assembly. Reaffirm your love for him, for he has repented. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the church. This Corinthian church is to do this as an assembly. I was in a church many, many moons ago and being trained and invited into a situation where there was a member, a leading member in the assembly 
who was entrapped in sin. And thankfully, the church dealt with this issue. But they dealt with it among the leaders of the church in a closed-door meeting. I happen to just be sitting in the back corner. And this individual was disciplined from the assembly. The church was never told. You can imagine how that was handled. Well, where's this person at? What's happened? What's taken place? There's a thousand different stories that begin to circulate around as to what has taken place here. To my knowledge, I may be wrong, but I, remembering, I don't remember that the issue was ever addressed publicly. And the result is that information is carried by word of mouth, perhaps by gossip, and gets all twisted and turned and has the tremendous capacity to develop disunity and divisions among the people of God. What is the instruction that we find from the pen of the Apostle Paul? These matters are to be dealt with as a church. The whole assembly dealing with the matter. And in that very assembly that I was part of, there was later on a situation of church discipline that was handled publicly, and the situation was so different. We have a calling as a church to exercise corporate discipline, to come to agreement together that this individual is living in unrepentant sin, and we as a loving church cannot permit this. We also have a calling as a church that when and if that individual comes to a place of repentance, we corporately, as a body, explain this and restore the sinner back to the assembly. Verse 9, Paul says, For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Here Paul refers again to the letter that had brought them sorrow. They indeed had proven obedient to him to the call of God, and had exercised this discipline. Verse 10, anyone whom you forgive, Paul wants them now to know, I forgive. What I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, and there again he's softening it, of course he's had to forgive something. But if I've forgiven anything, I'm going to make light of it here, it has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. This is not all about me, and it's not all about what I've suffered from this individual. This individual has hurt the church, but this individual has repented. I forgive him. If Paul could take personal offense, we would not be surprised, but he doesn't. I'm not going to make this a matter between me and this individual, but for your sake, as a church, welcome him back because he's repentant. If I have forgiven anything, he downplays the sin because it was a sin against him. One has said here the fact of forgiveness is stated as a hypothesis, if I have forgiven anything, that it's that indefiniteness and dismissiveness born of pastoral tact which has come to expression here. I think that's well said, that Paul is simply trying to make light of his own personal suffering in this. He has forgiven the man, in part because to do so brings the matter to a close. It returns the church to health and thus is for the good of the Corinthians 
And it puts Paul in sync with God to say, I forgive and I rejoice to forgive this man who's hurt me because he's turned from his sin and has repented. We don't have time to press this point further here. It's not the place. Paul doesn't forgive him in his own mind and heart, unrelated to the man. He forgives him because he has repented. Verse 11, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his design. Jesus forgives the man. Satan wants to overwhelm him with sorrow. God stands there with open arms, welcoming the sinner back who's left his sin. But Satan wants him to stay there in a place of guilt and shame and sorrow. The Corinthian believers were to extend open arms to this man and demonstrate the power of forgiveness and the joy of restoration. Satan wants the church to do what? To remain against him, opposed to him. There's a foothold opportunity for Satan here. We're not ignorant of his designs. See, out in this waking world, there's a lot of sin There's a lot of people who turn away from God, but we serve a God who welcomes sinners back. And we want to position ourselves that way with this man. Forgive him, Paul says to the Corinthians. Forgive him. And Eden Baptist, as a church, as we've discussed over these last three weeks, we have a moral obligation to exercise church discipline together by removing from our membership any member who walks in unrepentant sin. But we are not to go about this painful process, not only for the health and testimony of the church, but also for the salvation of the individual sinner. That is our goal and our purpose. The purity of the church on the one hand, but the good of this individual on the other. So we see a pattern here that is very weird. It's not practiced by churches today, but it is a biblical pattern and we don't need to shy away from it. We shouldn't. Now what is that pattern? Is that a person becomes entrapped in sin within the assembly. That will happen. The next thing is confrontation. Gentle, gracious, Loving confrontation, but a love that says, we love you enough to say you have to stop or you need to start. You need to turn from your sin. That leads ultimately, if the person doesn't turn, point number three, to discipline. That is, the church comes together and agrees together, not just one person's individual idea, but the church sensing the leading of God and knowing what His Word has said, stands together and says, this is sin. This is wrong. And we call you as an assembly to turn from your sin. That leads then, by the mercies of God, to sorrow. That the person entrenched in sin begins to really feel the pressure of the Spirit through the action of the church. And that sorrow, by the grace of God, leads to repentance. The one who has run from God now turns back to God. That then leads to forgiveness on the part of the assembly who restores, who puts that person back into right position, a right walk with God, puts their arm around him and says, let's go on. 
Let's go forward and love God with all of our heart. We've loved you enough to stop you. We love you enough now to continue to walk in fellowship with you now that you've repented and changed. And we're to go about all this with an earnest desire to restore and heal, never to harm and destroy. Now here we've got to understand as a church, we're really going against the stream of our Western individualism, aren't we? Which says, leave me alone. My life is my business. You stay out of my life. I'll do what I want to do. I'll take care of me. You take care of you. And we'll all be happy with that. Our world has no place for this. Even many churches who are affected by this worldly thinking really operate in the same way. What you do in your private life is your private business. It's not the business of the church. And when we begin to talk these strange ideas of a church body so loving a member that they surround that member and call that member to change, people think of church discipline in our world and in many churches as a barbaric relic of colonial America, some sort of witch hunt in which we're trying to figure people out who might not walk in perfect line and we want to have this trial and we want to then discard this person like so much trash. That's the picture they have. What picture should we have? I think the picture that we should have in our head is the father of the prodigal son with open arms running to his son and saying, welcome home. You've turned from your sin. I love you. And celebrating that. Not being ashamed by it, but calling others to the party and saying, my son has come home. What joy there is in a church that knows that and what love there is there. The truth is, as we think on these matters, we're all prodigal sons. We're all people who turn our backs on God and run away to sin. But the picture that we have of hope in the Scriptures is of a God with open arms who says, turn from your sin and come home. We're gathered here today for one reason. We're gathered here today because God has poured out His just wrath against us upon Jesus, who died as a sacrificial lamb for our sins. We are gathered here today to worship, to rejoice, to build one another up in the faith, because the resurrection of Jesus makes possible a state of reconciliation to God, which makes possible a state of reconciliation with one another. We come wrapped in the merits of Jesus Christ before the God of the universe who has welcomed us home. We can't really take on these doctrines and these truths and not allow it to affect the way that we relate with one another. How does God deal with sinners? Does He simply stand back and say, oh, go ahead and do what you want to do? He goes after us, doesn't He? With love and with grace and with persistence, He continues to pursue and to call us to a place of repentance and change. And when we come, there is our Father, time after time after time, saying, I receive you, I forgive you. How many times have you sinned the same thing and know that God forgives? How could we do anything else as a church do you know 
at the core of your being what it means to turn from sin and be welcomed into the arms of a loving Savior? Do you know the joy of sins forgiven and of being reconciled to God? As a body of believers who have this experience, we rejoice together to extend that very same forgiveness to repentant sinners and to embrace them with joy. Whether they're new converts or whether they're members returning to the fold. But what we must do is love one another enough to hold one another accountable and to graciously seek to restore one another. Sin abounds in this world. It abounds in churches. But where sin abounds, let us celebrate that grace which abounds all the more. Imagine how a watching world would look at us and look at a situation like this one with Paul and what, who, what we assume to be one who has hurt him personally and sees the church hold that person accountable. Number one, that's not the way this world works. You just leave that person alone, ignore them, whatever. But the church saying, we love you enough to stand up to your sin and then seeing that person come to repentance and being embraced not, well, I'm glad you came to see reality, now please go away and don't ever bother me again. Person is sin, we kind of close that portfolio and we're done with them. No, a church body that is receiving and welcoming this repentant sinner. Imagine as the world looks at that, how it would see in that very outworking the work of Jesus Christ to save sinners as we would permit a person to remain entrenched in sin, we bypass all such opportunity. But as we are faithful as a church, what we will be doing is exercising the kind of otherworldly love that calls sinners to repentance and then when they turn, doesn't treat them with bitterness and harshness and dismissiveness but receives them with grace and forgiveness. And in that, may God enable us to model the love of Christ for us as sinners. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we thank You that the Bible does not skirt the issue of sin and suffering. Outside of the first two chapters and the last two chapters, it's a book filled with sin. we would walk in utter despair with this very clear vision of sin and its destructive power were it not for the grace of Christ. And to this grace we cling. We ask You, Father, by Your mercies and by Your grace that we would understand forgiveness. I pray that You draw to Yourself anyone who is separated from Christ and does not have the assurance of sins forgiven and reconciliation with You through Jesus. For those of us who have that assurance, God, I pray that we would rejoice to live a life of loving confrontation, of spiritual interest in one another. And I pray that we would rejoice in forgiveness. May we as a church have the opportunity. You have called us on numerous occasions 
to be faithful, to exercise discipline so as to call people to repentance. I pray that you would increase the opportunities to see repentance being met with forgiveness and restoration. You've been merciful to us in this regard. But I pray, Father, that you would give us more opportunities to see that turn and that joy. And I pray that we would remain faithful as a church and that you will teach us how to exercise discipline as we should and then to welcome with forgiveness. We know that this is to apply to every aspect of our lives, not just this one matter as a church. But I pray that we would learn to know how to deal with sin and that we would learn to forgive. We need your help and your aid. We can only do it through your strength. But when we think of this one who has harmed Paul, we realize that there is but faint reflection here of how we have hurt you as our God. But we thank you for your love and mercy to forgive us in Christ and to give us hope and reconciliation with you, our Father. In this grace, we stand amazed. And we rejoice together as a church this day. It is through the name of Christ that we give you this thanks. Amen.